You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Today is Friday, the 23rd of September 2022. The time is 4.03 p.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zia um, and Imam Raza Ahmed. Um, the topics that uh, we have chosen for you today are um, uh, very interesting and um, it's something which uh, which I'm sure will um, ignite some discussions here within the studios and uh, and give opportunity to our listeners to participate uh, in the discussion as well. So the first topic is about uh, the United States, and there has recently been a survey there uh, which suggests that uh, uh, quite a few of the respondents think that a civil war within the USA is likely within a decade. So we shall be talking about that survey, and we shall be talking to um, a guest as well as to what he thinks about that survey. That survey has been published uh, by um, the Guardian newspaper, so we shall refer to that. So that's the first topic. We shall we shall uh, talk about that um, in the next hour or so. And then we move on to our second topic, which uh, is also very interesting, and, uh, and we certainly hope that you will um, um, take part in that discussion as well, and that's about happiness at work. So how happy and engaged are you at work? Um, how many times you're going to work, um, to the office, that is, um, post the COVID um, restrictions? So we shall talk about that uh, and we shall be talking to a few guests. Please do participate in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. So more than two-fifths of Americans believe a civil war is at least somewhat likely in the next 10 years. This, according to a new survey, uh, and the figure that increases to more than half among self-identified strong Republicans. So if you if you just look at um, the Republican uh, continent, uh, the Republican um, population, uh, or the Republican voters, uh, the um, uh, the number of respondents increases to uh, more than half. So this was a survey con- conducted by YouGov. Um, so amid heated rhetoric from supporters of Donald Trump, uh, the findings in this poll by YouGov and the Economist, the results have been uh, very interesting. So um, uh, this um, uh, this has actually sparked quite a bit of um, debate. So on Sunday night, the uh, that was um, uh, that was uh, not this Sunday night, the the, the night previous, um, the previous Sunday night, the South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham predicted riots in the street if Trump is indicted over his detention of classified documents after leaving the White House materials recovered by the FBI at Trump's home this month. Um, Graham obviously earned widespread rebuke as a result of those comments. And on Monday, the subsequent Monday, Mary McCord, a former acting deputy attorney general, told CNN, it was incredibly irresponsible for an elected official to basically make veiled threat of violence 
justice law enforcement and department of justice does their job so essentially what she's saying is that um um that uh, both the department of justice and law enforcement agencies are just doing their job so um and and then she continued that people are angry they may be violent um and that's because um uh that showed that what pe- what Trump knows and what Lindsey Graham also knows is that people listen to that and people actually mobilize and do things um so this uh, according to Mary McCord so January 6th was the result of the same kind of tactic by president Trump and his allies according to Mary McCord nine deaths including suicides among police officers have been linked to the capital attack on 6th January 2021 when supporters Trump told to fight like hell to overturn his defeat by Joe Biden attempted to stop the certification of electoral electoral results so that is the the background um uh, of the discussion that we are having today and in this poll by yougov and the economist 65% of all respondents said political violence had increased since the start of 2021 slightly fewer fewer 62% thought political violence would increase further in the next few years and participants were also asked looking ahead to the next 10 years how likely do you think it is that there will be a civil war in this country and among all us citizens 43% said civil war was at least somewhat likely among strong democrats and independents that figure was 40% but among strong republicans 54% said civil war was at least somewhat likely so that um is the survey that uh, uh that we just referred to right so if you if you were to sort of uh, take a step back and go into a little bit of history so the last american civil war also called the war between states four year war between 1865 1861 and 1865 that was uh uh among the southern and the northern states um uh, so the southern states that seceded from the union and formed uh, what was called then the confederate states of america so a newly released poll by um the economist and yuga as i said has um talked about a possibility well not a possibility has talked about uh, a lot of respondents 62% of respondents thinking that another civil war is um is uh is at least somewhat likely in the holy quran it is written o ye who believe be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for allah even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred whether he be rich or poor allah is more regardful of them of them both then you are therefore follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably and if you conceal the truth or evade it then remember that allah is well aware of what you do chapter 4 verse 136 so uh, what the quran here is is talking about is really how important 
justice is. And um, we, we, we have talked about the theme of justice, the importance of justice in the society um, quite a few times on, on this show. In the United States, as President-elect Joe Biden's victory was to be formally confirmed by Congress, a routine procedure, thousands of hardline pro-Trump supporters, as we know, gathered in D.C. to protest. Ultimately and unfortunately, but not entirely surprisingly, this protest turned violent as crowds of people stormed the Capitol building and entered the offices and halls and chambers of the government. After hours of violence, President Trump finally addressed the instigators by first repeating his allegations about electoral fraud and then vaguely asking his supporters to go home. In the light of these events, it would seem that the recent letter by His Holiness, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, wrote to President Trump, um, many years ago, has fallen on deaf ears, highlighting the need for absolute justice and transparency. His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, wrote in that letter, It is imperative that the leader of the nation sets an example for the rest of society. For the sake of peace and harmony of any nation, it is a prerequisite that the government, local authorities and law enforcement agencies treat all their citizens equally irrespective of their skin, color, or ethnicity. In this regard, the expectation of absolute justice and non-discrimination from the leader of a country such as the United States is especially high." Those such events would have been inconceivable, inconceivable only a few years ago. His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, also alluded to such circumstances as um, uh, as earlier as late, you might say, um, in 2016, when he spoke at the Peace Symposium held in Canada. And I quote, His Holiness said, and I quote, human nature is such that it is impossible for people to agree on everything, and so disagreements will occur from time to time. But the key is to solve those disputes with justice and fairness. Rather, than to prioritize one's own interests above others. To bring any conflict to an end, justice is a prerequisite. If a person is not fair and ethical, then whatever grievance or problem exists will only escalate. Rather than peace, all that will be achieved will be hatred and contempt. So much of the current state of affairs can be attributed to many factors. We can talk about honesty, integrity, and quite a few things, um, and, and quite a few other attributes as well. As the Caliph, may Allah be his helper, has stated, certainly much of the division prevalent in the world today is because the underlying intentions of the parties involved are not innocent or honest. There are clear contradictions between their words and deeds, and there can never be peace if there is disharmony between what a person says and what he does. As unbelievable as it sounds, the threat of civil war suddenly feels more real. 
His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, predicted that as, as again, as many as four years ago, um, well, if it's 2016, I said six years ago, when he spoke about, spoke with the renowned Canadian journalist, Peter Mansbridge, about divisive politics and threats they pose to peace and stability. Understandably, tensions are high in the United States right now. The threat of more violence is hanging in the air. Um, and the uh, and, and that danger uh, keeps on um, escalating and there can be an escalation um, at any time. So that is, ladies and gentlemen, the discussion that uh, we are having. Um, Imam Reza, this is something that um, that obviously um, His Holiness um, has warned the world about uh, and he warned everybody at a time when, uh, you know, people, a lot of people actually did just shrug their shoulders about it and they said, well, you know, is this, is this for real? It wasn't just a shrug, wasn't it? Mm. It was uh, something unheard of. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, if you think about civil war and if you think about America right now, a very these, bold statement. To yeah, make. they don't really go hand in hand. And okay, maybe right now we've heard this come mm -hmm. up in the news. Some certain media outlets, newspapers have used that term as well. Yeah. But six years ago, Correct. it was unthinkable. Yeah, it was un unthinkable, and I I do remember. I think when you spoke about Peter Man uh, Peter Mansbridge, <laughs> I was about he, to say he, that, yeah. he did have a yeah. He, he opened his eyes and he, yes, he raised his eyebrows and he said sure? exactly what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> civil war. I think he repeated. Uh, he said civil war, and uh, his holiness said yes. Yeah. I think yeah. If you keep going this way, yeah. and if if the rhetoric which we saw during that term that uh, the President Trump had. It was just one thing after the other, one thing after the other. And then in January, what happened in January, unbelievable. Something never seen before, unthinkable. I'm not sure if you've been to the Capitol, if you've, if you've visited Washington, D.C., it's unimaginable mm -hmm. that you can get up to the <laughs> stairs. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the armed guards that are there, the security that is there. And it wasn't just the stairs. It wasn't just the steps of, yeah. of the capital. It was yeah. going inside. And the, whole, the whole world was in shock. It was The whole country was in America was in shock. The whole world was in shock. Because, yeah, absolutely, that's not something you would associate with uh, no. with America. I mean, uh, absolutely not. So, yeah, uh, yeah let's, um, let's at this juncture take a quick break. And when we come back, let's continue this discussion. Let's talk a little bit more maybe about the survey itself and as... as as we're now saying, it's actually not in the press. People are actually talking about it because 62% mm. of respondents from a YouGov and Economist poll, remember, this is not, um, a, a, you know, this is uh, not anybody uh, conducting a poll. This, these are very reputable organizations which are conducting, which have conducted this poll and the results are um, are pretty uh, 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 pretty sure warning light. So hmm. let's go into further detail about that right after this break. Allah. <laughs> 
to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Draft Home Show here on The Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza, and Brother Daniel. Just before the break, uh, Daniel, you mentioned the interview that His Holiness had with the Canadian journalist Peter Mansbridge about the, the, you know, the politics and what His Holiness had to say six years ago um, uh, and, and, and the reaction that we saw not just from Peter Mansbridge, but I think I believe everyone who saw that interview. I remember, um, even within the community, it was <laughs> it wasn't I wasn't I wouldn't say a shock, but it was you know another proof about the the far sightedness of His Holiness. Exactly. And I mean, not looking at one one aspect of of uh, you know the geopolitical developments, but looking at the broader picture, looking at the wider picture from an objective point of view. I mean, if you are part of any political system, you won't say you won't say these things out of whatever reasons. I mean, maybe your your party is going to have a go at you. Maybe you have some ulterior motives, whatever the reasons may be. But him being uh, a, a religious leader, mm. someone who genuinely has the the interest of the people at heart exactly. without any ulterior motive or any gain that he would get out of it exactly to say these things openly and and very bluntly to be honest um maybe that's something that is missing in today's politics 100 percent, and you know it's uh i think it it just speaks of his uh his wisdom and yeah. his his foresight political foresight not to mention divine guidance um you know it's uh, it, as as we've just described it was a very bold statement to make it uh, it was it it surprised the interviewer it surprised the audience mm. it surprised everybody uh, a lot of people didn't believe a lot of people uh, as we said euphemistically shrugged their shoulders at that time and said <laughs> well what um so in, and and uh, you know what um, 5 6 years later the events just uh, things changed so quickly yeah. You know, Donald Trump was elected and 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 then things really uh, took a turn for the for the worst. So alongside political division, The Economist and YouGov journalists and researchers found that 65 percent of American people also believe that political violence has been on the rise since, as you mentioned, the Capitol riot on January 6th last year, when Trump supporter urged to fight like hell 
attempted to prevent the certification of the election results. And they also revealed that 62% of Americans believe political violence will escalate further over the next several years. Um, And these are people in the United States looking at the way things are developing there right now. If you broaden that a little bit more, look, I, I believe that we don't live in a world where things at home only decide the the future at home even. Mm-hmm. If you look at the situation here in, in Europe or even I, I believe around the world right now with the with the, with the Ukraine and Russia conflict, that has an impact on how we live our lives here. Mm-hmm. That has an impact on how we are going to go through the summer this uh, through the winter this year. <laughs> And again, the, this this tension between Russia and the United States is something that we know. Mm. Um, it's it's nothing new since the Cold War, since the f- fall of the Berlin Wall. Even it's it's an ongoing, continue uh, you know, saga. Saga, basically. Mm. And couple that with the things that are happening at home. I, I know that as far as the current president of the United States is concerned, people did not g- probably see what they were expecting as far as the results are concerned um, and and there was a lot of hope on, 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 on Joe Biden to deliver after the four years after you know the previous four years but was that the case? Has he delivered? Yeah I think you're right I mean and, and there, there always be two opinions on that uh, around the world and in, in the US at this time as well and I think what is more frightening is that the schism has become deeper hmm. this division yeah. within the US politics has become has has gone to the extent that people are now talking of taking up arms yeah. um which they which are available aplenty I, I i may add in in the united states and go to go to war with each other mm. uh, and that is i think the the really frightening aspect of it that the the divisions have um have have really exacerbated to the extent that people do not think that uh, dialogue can can solve matters anymore that the only solution is um, is an arms-based solution. And that is the unfortunate part here. And speaking about arms, I mean, there's different reasons why or how the, the civil war is likely. We mentioned some of the points that the journalists and the researchers of The Economist and, the U- and Yuga found out. But the studies from the National Institute for Healthcare Management found that between 2010 and 2020, Firearm fatalities in the U.S. increased by roughly 43%. The COVID pandemic, according to the National Institute for Healthcare Management, has resulted in a spike in gun purchases. And (laughs) in the aftermath, I believe, or I don't know, maybe it was before that even, again, you have so many factors that play into this. It's not just about Trump. It's not just about his supporters. It's also about the different movements that have occurred and have kind of appeared in the last couple of years. Uh, One thing that I do remember is the tensions between uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. as well as you know the indigenous population, the f- I wouldn't well not the indigenous population, but the far right movement that we have in the United States. And again, as a result of that, one person loses his life or her life, 
what follows after that and if you see the pictures it is very much like civil war you have hmm. people looting and burning and hmm. protesting and and marching and then you have the clashes with the police and it gets crazier and crazier and crazier and hmm. and and heavy guns and we're not talking about just you know stones on one side and and tanks on the other side we we are talking about full on armed people and and I- you know the even the even more worrying part over here is that united states is looked upon as the as, as yeah. the model of democracy around yeah. the world it is looked at you know the whole american dream thing mm. it, it's looked at the uh, it's an apostle of economic progress yeah. um uh, and economic success so you know when people around the world see that i mean what does that tell you about the rest of the world <laughs> <laughs> that that that's what it is So Garen Wintemute, a gun violence researcher at the University of California, he surveyed more than 8,600 adults about their views on democracy in the United States, racial attitudes in American society and their own attitudes towards political violence. A strong leader is more crucial according to around 40% of respondents even though virtually all agreed that it is necessary for the United States to remain democratic. <laughs> so yeah, that's I mean it's, there's a, there's a dichotomy. <laughs> I mean it's a it's a strange phenomenon here. <laughs> I mean democracy and 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 violence and um and and I'm right versus like uh, <laughs> I'm right and therefore you have to be wrong. You have to be wrong. <laughs> so about 1 in 5 respondents believe that they would likely be carrying a gun if they were caught in a scenario where they felt justified to use mm-hmm. violence to further a significant political goal. Political goal. Yeah. A little more than 7% of these participants which would correspond to around 18 million Americans said they would be prepared to kill a person in such a circumstance. And we're not well again political goal what what that defines and how do you define that uh, maybe that's something that you could go into a little bit more mm-hmm. in detail but just the fact that you have 18 million around 18 million Americans saying that yeah I'm I'm ready to kill a person for that all right you can have your say as well you can call us by uh, calling us on 02086877878 or send us a tweet at voice of islam uk uh, we're also on instagram and on instagram we're asking you a question about the second topic that we're going to be starting in just a little bit so go to instagram uk and um, have your say leave us a comment and if you would like to add anything on the top of that you're more than welcome to do so. We're going to go to our first guest for today. Robert Young Pelton is an author and a filmmaker and Robert is with us on the line. We're going to talk to him about this topic and ask him a few questions. Robert, good afternoon, PC Pony and welcome to the Draft Time show. Uh thank you for having me. Good to have you. Thank you so much for your time first of all. Um Robert, author and filmmaker, tell tell us about yourself and 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 you know the work that you do. I mean, it's quite self-explanatory, but um just for the benefit of our listeners what exactly what kind of films what kind of you know books have you written and why what's the interest uh, i'm probably most famous for a 1000 page book called the world's most dangerous places which is a guide to uh the war zones in the world and how to survive them and in my filmmaking uh you know i'm not very creative so my tv series or series of documentaries was called the world's most dangerous places and what i've been doing for the last um 
I want to say 20 years, is going directly inside uh, conflicts and uh, meeting with rebel groups, jihadi groups, military groups, uh, insurgents, and understanding what their motivations are, what really is going on on the ground, and then uh, simply coming back and explaining to people. So I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on the relative dangers of the world. So uh, that's my expertise, and that's what my topics are. Mm-hmm. Robert, if I can take a cue from your introduction, do you think U.S. is becoming one of the most dangerous places in the world? Well, <laughs> so, you know, when I write my book, we always make fun of Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia, and we say, oh, my God, these places are so terrible because uh, everybody's got a gun. Uh, but in reality... America is a dangerous place, not necessarily because of the percentages of homicides, uh, but the you know, pervasiveness of violent thought and action. And, and, you know, this is something that I go to Afghanistan a lot, and I've been there going since the mid-90s. Um, you know, people that own guns and use guns in these places understand the seriousness of violent threats and, and use of violence. In America, we have this sort of projecting of what they call 2A, which is the Second Amendment, uh, the right to uh, own firearms. And there's a lot of posturing politically about the potential use of weapons. We even have uh, one politician, I think yesterday or the day before, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said she answers her door with a an AR-15, which is almost laughable when you think about it. But then again, she was swatted twice, which is a very, you know, gunned up group of police people responding to emergencies. So there is that potential for violence here. So where do you think the U.S. is headed, Robert? Well, we have a very serious problem. And, uh, you know, I was trained by special forces. I'm not in the military, but I went through some exercises to understand how Green Berets are trained. And one of the exercises they do is called Robin Sage. And it's essentially taking a group of Green Berets and teaching them how to overthrow a country. And most people don't realize that conflict is in stages. You know, it's not just war. Hmm. We have a problem in that people are inciting division. And this is through our social media, through political speeches, through just continuous bombardment of negative images that people can argue about. This can be accelerated, as we saw on January 6th, into violence, because this is a science. It's it's not random. So yes, we do have a problem, and I think we have some extraordinary poll numbers, you know, in which 40% think that there might be a civil war, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this, again, I think is posturing, because war is a very complex business. We had a period in the 60s, late 60s, in which you saw riots in the streets, you know, between minorities, students, things like that. We don't actually have that now. So, I mean, yes, there's a danger, but no, it's not that extreme. So, so you would you would say that the the, the survey results don't have a lot of legs? Well, let's go back to science. You know, Arab Spring is a good example of... Mm violence that overthrows, maybe not violence, but, you know, street demonstrations that overthrows the government. We have the opposite problem. We have more old people than young people. So, you know, even though you hear a lot of talk, most people have homes, they have mortgages, they have cars, they have family. I mean, we're not about to burn down the country. 
Whereas if people are impoverished and they're angry and they're young and they see no future, they will come out and, and demonstrate en masse and they will use violence if needed. You know, we're sort of seeing that in Russia more than America. Right. So uh, how dangerous do you think is the is the political rhetoric at the moment? Uh, and, and where do you think that that's going to lead uh, American American society, this schism that is there between the deep schism between the Republicans and the Democrats and the supporters? Well, that's that's a very good question, because, you know, I spent some time with Al Qaeda and the Chechen rebels and a number of people who incite people to violence because of injustice. Mm. And I am seeing the same patterns in the rhetoric here, where they combine religion, they combine social injustice, uh, they, they fabricate events that make people feel outraged, and they try to manipulate their feelings. And this is a very dangerous uh, combination when it's done by legitimate elected officials. And, and you know, as we saw with Donald Trump, you actually saw a very nuanced buildup to January 6th. It wasn't just Donald Trump saying, you know, go to the Capitol. Hmm. It was a series of inflammatory talkers who excited a base using social media, very, very Arab Spring, hmm. and then proceeded to the capital and, and performed violent acts. So do you think this, this rhetoric is going to reduce uh, in, in, in months and years to come? No, <laughs> no, because people are using low-level forms of conflict. You know, outside agents try to destabilize and weaken America. You know, you, you've seen all the research on Russia being involved in mm. social media, not just here, but all around the world. You've seen the insertion of what they call little green men and false flag events. It's, it's a very volatile area that isn't an army marching on a country. So it's very hard to respond to nonviolent uh, incendiary acts. What we have to do is somewhat like uh, President Biden is doing, is call their bluff. You know, if somebody says, we're going to go there and burn this down and we've got a million people, you find out very quickly that it's usually about 20 or 30 people and it's a very carefully constructed campaign. So this is the key, is to throw cold water. Uh, you know, like Dr. Zawahiri, right, would sit in hmm. some remote place in Pakistan and do these long, boring lectures on why, you know, people must rise up. And then you find out he's just a, an old man living in a remote area. Hmm. And this is what we have over here with Donald Trump. We, we have somebody talking as if something's going to happen, but in actual fact, he's losing his support base. Um, you met, Robert, you mentioned um, President Biden. After the four years of Trump, um, people were talking when President Biden was elected. They were talking about healing the country. They were talking about um, kind of rehabilitation from what has happened in the last four years. In your opinion, did that happen, or are you, is is President Biden on the right track, on the right way? Is he is he able to do that? No, this reconciliation or moderation of feelings has to come from the right. Hmm. You know, it, it's not going to come from the left because people are polarized. And if you go out into the rural parts of America and you start asking them what they think, what television channels they watch, they're they're in their own ecosystem. They're hmm. very happy in their right-wing bubble. It is the right wing that has to say, wait, we're losing traction because our leader, our ideological uh, subset, is shrinking in size, and therefore we're losing power. So the, the right has to undermine its belief in 
this sad sort of ideological quest for violence that Trump keeps promoting. Do you see that happening? Ever? I, I do, I do. Um, really? Okay. You know, I do, but I, that's not a good thing. Mm. So what, what I see is, you know, Donald Trump's a TV actor that was very famous on trash TV as a, as a famous guy, you know, teaching people how to run a business. Uh, we're now moving towards people like Ron DeSantis, who has a Yale and a Harvard degree, who's using the same tactics, but is less inflammatory, but far more intelligent about how he manipulates the media and the right. So, yes, we're moving away from sort of the clown circus, Las Vegas view of uh, conflict, and we're moving towards a darker, more insidious type of conflict. So what do you think then is, is playing? You certainly don't think that, you know, this the civil war scenario is likely uh, or even a semblance of something like that is likely in the next 10 years. What do you think is playing into the minds of these 40% or 60%, uh, depending on the number you're looking at, are thinking? Well, I think they're angry. I mean, we have a large dispossessed group of older, middle and lower class white males in America. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not young, angry kids. And they feel that somehow the American dream has been taken from them. And you see racist overtones. You see even sort of nationalist, you know, white power overtones in there. And this is the core that they're drumming up. This is the people they prey on on Facebook and other social media and even TV. Those people actually can be rehabilitated. There was a, a test where they took people who watched Fox News every day and made them watch CNN, and slowly their ideas changed. So it's, we are very much a media-driven country. You know, our ideology does not come from books. It comes from TV and, mm. and Facebook. So I think that's where we have to focus. We have to say, you know, Arab Spring started because the Internet was more powerful than the armies of dictators. And, and we have to think the same way here, because we are being Arab Springed, if I could make up a word. Mm. So... You know, there is, you're saying there's anger, um, there is frustration, and then there is obviously the prevalence of guns across the country. So it doesn't sound a very optimistic scenario to me. No, I don't know if you've been in any wars, but you have to understand that these people own small uh, rifles and handguns. There, there, huh. There's no mortars or howitzers in people's basements. You know, when I'm in Afghanistan, people have Katusha launchers, which they rent out. So I, I wouldn't take what people call guns here as anything leading to any sort of mass mobilization of an army. Uh, we had a very famous movie here called Red Dawn, in which, you know, a bunch of college kids hmm. defeated the Cubans or Russians or something like that. Hmm. That's a completely fictitious scenario. Hmm. You know, if you look at our police, hmm. they're much more weaponized than the civilians are. Robert, if I could just, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to uh, be pessimistic about the whole thing, and I and I hope and pray that you're right, and I'm, you know, <laughs> the question, the, my line of questioning is wrong, but but just to sort of build on the argument that you were making, and, and you talked about Afghanistan earlier, uh, well, uh, what they had was uh, uh, was not even a bunch of AK-47s. All of that came later, so there. The well, Russian that was done with money. Exactly. So, you know, 
so what I'm trying to say is, and and you look at many other conflicts. You look at Syria. Um, you 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 look at Ukraine at the moment. Uh, you, you know, sophisticated weaponry is coming from uh, from outside after the conflict has started. So uh, you know, weapons can can come in. Is what I'm saying. Yes, you, that's a very intelligent assessment. And <laughs> if you were to find no, I mean you're you're talking about something that could happen in the U.S. Yeah. if someone was to funnel expertise weaponry you know air support um I, I, well, if that. i can if i can say that on live radio you, you know uh, probably to an extent uh, something happening to america akin to what america has been doing in, in some countries and, and there's no lack there's no <laughs> there go, there's no go. lack of people who would probably want to harm america <laughs> yeah if I can exactly say that. so yeah. there's no shortage of enemies let's take it let's take it back to what i said earlier you know okay. i spend a lot of time with people who are trained to overthrow governments. That's mm. all they do, right? Yeah. They, they parachute behind enemy lines. They teach farm kids how to shoot weapons. They call in airstrikes. They monitor this situation very closely. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest fears that the Pentagon had was that those exact same people would get involved in destabilizing the government. And we haven't seen that. You know, the funny the funny paradigm is that we have people who say they're patriots but want to overthrow the government it's mm. kind of a weird you know contrast but the threat is real i mean the threat of a flashpoint and you know most civil wars start with a singular violent event that outrages people and you know they begin shooting or whatever uh if you look at the five or seven stages of conflict mm. you know we're at about number two where we have clearly defined groups that dislike each other we haven't actually reached the violence part, except let's just say January 6th was the first indication that there was an organized attempt to use violence to overthrow the government. Robert, such a pleasure to speak to you. Hmm. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Uh, very enlightening discussion. Uh, excellent. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So that was uh, Robert Young Pelton, who is an author and a filmmaker. Uh, uh, the author of World's Most Dangerous Places talking to us about... We need to get him back to talk about Yeah, absolutely. That was really <laughs> some interesting <laughs> stories that he might have. Correct, I'm, exactly. I'm sure he does. <clears throat> All right, 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. If you want to have your say, don't forget, we're asking you a question on Instagram about the second topic, how happy are you in the workplace that you are working in? So go to Words of Islam UK and leave your comments. Um, I think coming coming to the end slowly slowly to to, to this topic, um, mm. uh, His Holiness has been talking about this for more than a decade, I believe. And if you look at it across the, across the globe, all of the conflicts that we have, and this one again, he reminds us over and over again that although things are headed into a wrong direction. Anything can change with our prayers. Anything can change if we change ourselves. And most of all, the lack of justice, the lack of belief in God, the lack of accountability. I mean, not not in this world. Yeah, we, we are concerned and we are afraid of uh, accountability in this life about, you know, different authorities and different departments going after each other if you are liable and having done done something. But, I mean, this is something that ends here. And this is something that if you are really good at it, you can you can hide these things for, for quite a long time. I mean, if 
I, I, I don't want to say it, but people have said it, and I'm just reiterating and re- repeating what people have said. Mm. How can a man like Mr. T become president of of the largest democracy in the world? Yeah. So if he can become president of the United States, then the sky is the limit. You can hide things. Then you anything can, can happen. Then, then anything can happen. This is where I'm coming from. But that that's I think that's the problem that we have in the world. And this is something that His Holiness keeps on repeating over and over again. These peace symposiums that we've started here, how long have they been ongoing? 15, 16, 17 years? I don't yeah, even know. A couple of decades well, probably. It's, it's, yeah. been, it's, been, it's been more than a decade. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And the the repeating points that he mentions giving an analysis of what the world is, the, the 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 state of the world that we're in right now, talking about the different fractions, the different groups that are at odds with each other, and then giving the solution and coming back to, you know, some of the main points that you need to be just. If If you want to have natural resources for yourself, then expect that other countries would like to do the same. And what is yours is yours what is not yours is not yours to 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 take or to just have in in any way form or shape whatsoever just because you are the bigger nation so these interests and how you define justice it's very clear and the holy quran you mentioned the verse before mm-hmm. that god almighty has laid it out that the enmity of a people just because you are um, at war with each other just because you don't like the other country or the other party or the other nation it shouldn't make you become unjust It should. that's not a reason for you to be unjust if you look at the lifetime of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon, of Allah be upon mm-hmm. him what have they not done what did they not do to the Muslims mm-hmm. they persecuted them they boycotted them they tried to kill them and they did in some cases as well and we're not just talking about some random Muslims this was the early community very closely knit community members of the family of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him were amongst those who who lost their lives who were killed Hmm. but when it came to for example I believe it was the Battle of Badr where the Muslims occupied the, the, the the water um, source hmm. and the Meccans came and they wanted water as well the, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him say no this is a strategically very important point um, you're not going to get any water hmm. He, they gave them access to the water this hmm. is your enemy that we're talking about right. so even when they say that everything is fair in love of war this is not something that probably not probably not Yeah, you know um, I, I want to read next Excerpt out of um, uh, the address that His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed gave um, at Capitol Hill back in 2012 um, to a bunch of uh, congressmen uh, and women, um, one of which was uh, none other than, other than Nancy Pelosi. Mm. His Holiness said, and I quote, The truth is that peace and justice are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Yet in general, there is little doubt that restlessness and anxiety is increasing in the world and so disorder is spreading. This clearly proves that somewhere along the line, the requirements of justice are not being fulfilled. 
He added, In the Holy Quran, God Almighty has made it clear that whilst our nationalities or ethnic backgrounds act as a means of identity, they do not entitle or validate any form of superiority of any kind. Thus, it is a clear teaching of Islam that the people of all nationalities and all races are equal and is also made clear that all people should be granted equal rights without any discrimination or prejudice. This is the key and golden principle that lays the foundation for harmony between different groups and nations and for the establishment of peace. So, I mean, in these few sentences, mm. he's he's really addressed the root cause of the problem in the U.S. as well as around the world. Um, Robert was talking about, uh, you know, race relations, um, uh, other issues. And here he's talking about justice. He's talking about race. He's talking about that everybody's equal. And he, he's, he's also saying that, listen... Peace and justice are inseparable. I think yeah. that's where we've lost uh, lost the plot. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Um, and it's not just. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the letter that he wrote to President Obama back then as well. So this is not something that has recently started. Yes, his speeches and his his uh, sermons and 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 the addresses that he gives to different capitals, uh, to different. Uh, parliaments, uh, as well as here at the Peace Symposium is one thing. But then again, addressing President Obama directly, writing to him, not just him, but then different world leaders at the same time. Because look, again, this is not just a U.S. problem. Hmm. This lack of justice, this lack of, of peace is something that we see globally it's worldwide. A global problem, yeah. It's a global problem. And even here in, look, six months ago, would you have thought that this could happen here in Europe, right at our doorstep. <laughs> Nobody would have believed it. Mm. Nobody anticipated that. I mean, this is something you go back to the 1940s, Second World War, Cold War. Yeah, things were a bit stressful at that time, yeah? But not here. Yeah. 2022? In Europe? No. No way. Mm. So in that letter that His, uh, His Holiness wrote to uh, Barack Obama in 2012, he said that there is currently great agitation and restlessness in the world. Small-scale wars have broken out in certain areas. Unfortunately, and look, again, divine guidance here. The superpowers have not been as successful as was anticipated in their efforts to establish peace in these conflicted regions. Globally, we find that almost every country is engaged in activities to either support or oppose other countries. However, the requirements of justice are not being fulfilled. It is with great it is with regret that if we now observe the current circumstances of the world, we find that the foundation for another world war has already been laid. As so many countries, both large and small, have nuclear weapons, grudges and hostilities are increasing between nations. In such a predicament, the third world war looms almost certainly before us. Such a war would surely involve atomic warfare, and therefore we are witnessing the world head towards a terrifying destruction. And then addressing him directly, he says that my request to you and indeed to all world leaders is that instead of using force to suppress other nations, use diplomacy, dialogue and wisdom. The major powers of the world, such as the United States, should play their role towards establishing peace. They should not use the acts of smaller countries as a pretext 
to disturb world harmony. Currently, nuclear arms are not only possessed by the United States and other major powers. Rather, even relatively smaller countries now possess such weapons of mass destruction, where those who are in power are often trigger-happy leaders who act without thought or consideration. Thus, it is my humble request to you to strive to your utmost to prevent the major and minor powers from erupting into a third world war. Powerful words. Very powerful words. Um, um, and absolutely a, uh, a huge warning to the world. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, words spoken back in 2012 and nobody would have uh, would have cared to listen. Uh, probably some more people would care to listen now. Probably still not everybody. Um, but let me end uh, um, this segment of our show today with um, uh, with another quote from uh, from His Holiness, uh, and this is from the address uh, at the Capitol Hill that I mentioned earlier. His Holiness said, "The United States, as the world's largest power, should play its role in acting with true justice and with such good intentions as I have described." If it does so, then the world will always remember with great admiration your great efforts. It is my prayer that this hope becomes a reality. And that's that's what it ultimately boils down to. Even I was just um, the other day, I think two days ago or yesterday even, after what happened at the United Nations, after um, Putin's uh, statement about what's happening, this this clip, I think it was a, uh, at the end of a Friday sermon. He again reminded us specifically as Ahmadi Muslims, and uh, I think people of the world generally. You don't have to be an Ahmadi to 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 listen to these words. That the world, the situation, the 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 state that the world is in right now, nothing can change that. Uh, humans definitely. I mean, we've seen they're they're not really interested. In 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 peace. If that was the case, we wouldn't have proxy wars being fought yeah. uh, on, on on different territories, um, and that includes Muslim countries, so-called Muslim countries, unfortunately, yeah. who are doing this. But it is at the end of the day, I think that relationship that we have and we need to establish with with our Creator. Um, and if that is not the case, then certainly there is no hope, and that's the only thing that can change the course of the world. That is hopefully something that will change the course of the world because nobody wants that. Um, we we want to leave. I mean, we're talking about global warming and leaving a good world and and, mm. and a place to live, a clean place to live for the next generations. But again, this is something that happen that can happen within. Within moments, within seconds, one wrong move, one wrong statement, we don't know. You know, you're abs- you're absolutely one hundred percent right. But for some of our listeners, let let me make a make a connection, a bridge towards to to what um, uh, you're just saying. So we talked about, or His Holiness has actually um, talked about the connection between the importance of um, uh, the juxtaposition between peace and and justice. And when we talk about peace, you know, uh, peace within is peace without, hmm. and peace within cannot be achieved without without spirituality, without recognizing your Creator. So unless we have that, there is very little hope for peace, uh, and and certainly there won't be any justice, um, and therefore, um, I think. 
the world needs to uh, mm. to pay heed to the uh, to uh, to this voice of um, a man of god that's it um so all we can do is hope we can pray that uh, <clears throat> it doesn't turn that way it doesn't turn to the direction that visibly it is headed right now now we're going to go to the five o'clock news and then after that we will be back with the topic number two we want to know from you where do you work and how happy are you there so go to voice islam you can on instagram story uh, and then leave us a comment if you want to give us a call. You can do so on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Of course, we are on Twitter. Of course, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn and whatnot. So you can get, check out all of those socials in the break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you very much for joining us back here on the Draft Time Show today with myself, Raza, and brother Daniel. In this half of the program, we are talking about, or we want to know, about your workplace where do you work and does it are you happy um where you work can it be found at work happiness or is that something that uh, is the wrong place to look for so 0208687 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say you can send us a tweet as well and don't forget on instagram we're asking you that question so work is a big part of most people's adult life. It's an important part to enjoy um, what we spend what, or where or we spend most of our time uh, during the day or during the week doing. So around 32.8 million people are employed in thousands of jobs just here in the UK. And that's why we want to look at I want to discuss uh, the importance of being happy at work and the ways to achieve happiness in our daily lives as well. Following the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the, where he said that uh, David would never eat except from the earnings of his own hands work. Talking about the Prophet David, peace be upon him as well, uh, of course. So, Brother Daniel, are you happy? Uh, I'm happy at the moment in the studios. I'm not. Re- I'm, I'm not sure if I'm that happy when I'm at work. But <laughs> I certainly wasn't happy at my at my last employer, which obviously I would not name live on uh, on radio. But uh, I, I'm certainly happier, you know, being self-employed uh, yeah. or, or having my own uh, my, my own line of work, being my own boss for the last six years. So I'm certainly happier. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, this is, I think is a big question. I mean, it, it's it's a big question in in the corporate world as well. Yeah. You know what? Uh, it reminds me of a, another survey actually, which was um, which was done by Gallup. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, that was only about three years ago. And according to that survey, only twelve percent of uh, employees in the UK mm-hmm. are engaged. Okay. Um, Oh, engaged happy. with their work engaged with the work engaged yeah absolutely and um, that uh, shows 
how twelve percent. Exactly, that's not a lot, is it? <laughs> that is not a lot. Absolutely not. So that that um, has actually got a lot of people thinking about. So so employee engagement is a, is a yeah. big thing these days in the corporate world. Everybody talks about that, and and basically, you know, it, it boils down to are people happy or not. And that's why they're always coming up with new ideas Correct. and life coaches and this that yeah. and whatnot. Correct. All right. Now, as soon as we begin our academic journey, we are molded into the idea of having to work towards a career that will not only set us up with the best start in life, but that also motivates and drives our personal happiness. After all, if you're going to commit to spending a good 50 years, more or less, of your life in a career, it's important that you do something that you enjoy. But... There's also the financial factor to consider. For example, whilst you may enjoy eating chocolate, it's not going to do much to help you survive in life. So we as a society train our children to strive to find employment in a job that makes them happy, but also one in which, as an added bonus, you you kind of earn pretty well. However, these two factors do not always go hand in hand. Um, It can be difficult to find a balance of doing something that you enjoy whilst earning enough for your financial stability. And I think that's that's the big task and that's the big um, mission mission that you have when you go into Hmm. work, right? Even before that, when you start to think about what to study, where which line of work do you go into? Exactly, because yeah, you you want to be engaged with with your line of work. You want to do well at work, and uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of um, a lot of people then lose themselves when they do end up um, getting a job, and they they find that uh, it's not something that, and and a lot of that has to do with toxic cultures and um, and and whatnot. Hmm. So. Um, there is again, uh, you know, cultural change within organizations is again another uh, another favorite of uh, uh, of many authors and uh, and and speakers these days, uh, and and for good reason because, uh, uh, as I said, not a lot of people, not a lot of employees are are engaged with their work. So if if you are happy or, or unhappy with your work, please tell us. Please share. You can call us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Now we do have a few response. <laughs> well, uh, again, like uh, like you, brother Daniel, we have uh, one of our <laughs> volunteers saying that I work at Voice of Islam, and I love it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> expect anything else. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. Now, whilst that e- it's easy to, to 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 get caught up in seeking a balance between you know what, what I said before that the, the the worldly concept of money and then at the same time being happy in that work that you do and, and as an added bonus making the amount or financially the amount that you are w- looking for or looking after. As Muslims, we are reminded of our ultimate purpose on this earth and how one should seek to find personal happiness. There's a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he states that wealth is in the heart and poverty is in the heart. Whoever is wealthy in his heart will not be harmed no matter what happens in the world. Whoever is impoverished in his heart will not be satisfied no matter how much he has in this world. Verily, he will only be harmed by the greed of his own soul. That's a powerful one. 100%. And from this hadith, it becomes apparent that true happiness cannot be found in material things. Mm. Um, rather, it exists in our own personal uh, personal peace of mind and how one interprets um, our own our own situation. 
The search for happiness is a universal concept that we all seek to attain in our day-to-day -day lives. 2,300 years ago, Aristotle concluded that more than anything else, men and women seek happiness. Mm. The worldly goals that we create for ourselves, that is money, career, beauty, health, power, are valued only because we expect that it will make us happy. When we apply this concept to our working environment, happiness at work, according to research, is in fact a byproduct of positive, positive outcomes at work. According to an article published at the LSE, London School of Economics, happiness in, in fact, is in fact a precursor to success. The author notes that across lifespan, society pushes us the subtle message that if you work hard and become successful, then you will find happiness. Mm. They say, after a while, this way of thinking can become automatic. When I graduate from college, when I land my dream job, when I make six figures, <laughs> we think to ourselves, then I will be happy. When I get this new phone, when I get <laughs> iPhone 14, when I you know, get this new laptop, when I, picture, when yeah. I get this new car, uh, you know, uh, when I get this new BMW from BMW, when I get this new Ferrari, <laughs> but there's no end to it, is there? <laughs> so although this formula is intuitive, unfortunately, it is likely broken and backwards. And now you add on top of that. I mean, these were classical things. And you know, back in tw 20 years ago, this was something that was applicable. Uh, but now you add on top of that social media and what that is doing to the next generation. It's not just six figures. It's six figures by the time you turn 21. <laughs> <laughs> you, you understand? 100%. It's not just a Ferrari at the end, you yeah, know, when you exactly. when you're retired, you can, you can afford that Ferrari. No, it's by the no. time I turn 22, yeah. I want to have that. Yeah. Not just one. I want two of them. Correct. And so that added pressure on top of that. Mm. Um, how... How does that make you feel when you are 21 and you have 100 pounds in your account? It only adds to your pressure yeah. and um, only leads to what we're saying in the society, which is mental health problems. Yeah. So from that point of view, we want to know from you, where do you work and how happy or how, well, how, how happy are you, basically? We don't want to know how unhappy you are. Just tell us how happy you are. <laughs> so across sectional data, um, across sectional data indicates that the happiest people at work are those that are the most successful. One key study found that sales agents with a more positive outlook sold 37% more life insurance policies than their fewer positive co-workers. Um, and evidence from longitudinal studies uh, help us to determine what came first, happiness or success. Well, according to research from uh, these studies, it seems that the happiest people are those that are the most successful at work. In other words, being a happy person to begin with will lead you to be more successful at your job. I remember... I mean, I had a few jobs in my life. When 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 I turned sixteen, I worked in retail for a bit. I worked for the for the Red Cross for a little bit. Mm. It, there there is something to it. Um, of something course, to what? Sorry, meaning that if you have a positive attitude, if you're mm -hmm. happier to go into that work, of course, then yeah. the outcome or the the push that you give yourself, 100%, even yeah. even you know, you you will have days and times and moments where you say, you know what, mm -hmm. I'm not just not feeling it, but then you give yourself that push, 
and it, it makes a huge difference um, but again <laughs> that's just me talking about my personal experience we want to know from you how you feel about this according to the guardian in june 2022 this year 70 companies started to run a four-day week trial for some uh, for the same pay that will last six months and this there was a recent discussion again mm. in the news about this four-day four week yeah. trial but then you had issues what are you going to do with teachers or what are you going to do with doctors or mm. firemen and whatnot so that i'm not sure if that's can that's something that can be applicable to 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 every kind of sector. Yeah, so far they found that employees <coughs> are finding, uh, those who could do it, are finding time for things they couldn't before and feel like they've been, they have more time to relax. I, I, I Of course they would. They, they're only working <laughs> four days. Um, however, the days that they are working are busier and can have more workload. So changing the working week can have both advantages and disadvantages. The trial is still ongoing in, in, in the UK. But I, I, I don't know... Um, you know, again, coming back to this discussion about being engaged and not engaged, uh, I found that when I have been engaged at work, um, um, I, for example, at the moment I I run my own um, my own consulting business, and I don't mind working six days, sometimes yeah. even seven days a week yeah. uh, because I I like what I do. Yeah. But when I didn't like what I what I used to do, <laughs> like I, even yeah, exactly. Mondays used to hate Mondays, and and, and Fridays couldn't uh, couldn't be, couldn't you know come. just just, just <laughs> wouldn't come. Um, so uh, even a four day work week, um, yeah. I don't know, would be would be the answer. I think the answer really is to what you were saying earlier. It's that you know that you've got to you've got to be able to get people find happiness in the workplace, hmm. make that cultural change. Uh, because yeah, that that's where that's where the difference is, and 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 remember that difference that you were talking about in um, in in your attitude towards uh, towards showing up uh, at work in a when you were happier actually shows up in in pounds and pence mm. for the company for yeah. your employer. Yeah. Engaged employees are much more productive than disengaged employees. So, uh, so obviously there is that that huge connection, and uh, uh, and slowly but surely, I think companies and corporates are are realizing the importance of making that connection, and and there is, as I said earlier, a huge push towards uh, towards uh, uh, employee engagement. And you have you have companies that you know, especially these tech companies, where you will have the environment, the atmosphere that is created to make them more engaged more happy more relaxed not yeah, as really. stressed to have the, the creative outcome that that they expect absolutely then you, you know the likes of google and, yeah. and, and whatnot are, are presented <coughs> as the example yeah. of that um at the moment uh, they are the um the gold standard so zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. We want to know where you work, and we want to know how happy you are. If you don't want to name your employer, by all means, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, maybe the industry. If or you don't want to name you. That's <laughs> fine as well. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm okay with that. But just want to know: Are you happy? Yes yeah. or no? Our first guest for today is with us online. She is a work-life integration coach, uh, meaning uh, she helps workaholics and habitually busy people. <clears throat> free themselves from their overwhelming work and find joy. With us on the line is Rebecca Moraskis. Rebecca, good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. 
Hi, Reza. Hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you on. Now, Rebecca, you, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming here, you are very happy in your, in your work, aren't you? <laughs> you said you sound happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was listening to you all before I was on, and um, yeah, it's just I I'm an entrepreneur now, and so I work for myself, and it's uh, it's definitely a different kind of happiness than yeah. when I worked for someone else. But um, mm-hmm. this is such a great topic. I'm I'm so glad you guys are are talking about this. Oh, we're, um, we're glad that you, you you came on today. So I want to start off by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you into being a work-life integration coach. I, I heard about work, I mean, life coaches, but this combination, work-life integration coach, I have to admit my, my own ignorance a little bit, so it would help me as well to, to, to find out what exactly is it that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we're in a day and age where... Um, there is abundance of resources out there and people aren't, there's not as big of a stigma about going to therapy or about reaching out and asking for help with a life coach. And so um, I do a lot of life coaching, but I'm really focused on time, on time stressed people and helping them be free of overwhelm and to regain their agency and to have more joy. And so I think whether it's really a work relationship or a personal relationship, we all can improve our time management as far as like what's really important to us and matching that to our calendars. Is that where we're spending our time? Do we, are we saying some things are important to us, but then our calendars don't align. And so, yeah, I help people with boundaries and people pleasing and just getting out of that disconnected stuck phase and into more thriving and happiness and joy what I hear the most is that they want more time to spend with those that they love. They want more time to spend on passions that they have that they maybe set aside. And so we work on those things to um, rearrange their priorities and rearrange their schedules. So um, is your specialty working with um, workaholics um, and help them find joy and happiness in their life? Or do you also help with people who are just disengaged and not happy with their work at all and and therefore uh, not productive? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Really both. I think those are those are different. Actually, they can be the same person, I suppose. We mm. all are our mm. own unique flavor, but they typically are two different people. Those people that are just really committed to their jobs. And that's awesome. I don't want to knock that. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing when people are really passionate about the work that they do. It's just, I like to say, you know, think of the analogy of like, are you putting all of your eggs in one basket? Are you putting so much of your energy and your capacity and your time into one area of your life? If that's happening, then typically there's other areas of your life that just aren't getting nurtured Mm. and those are lacking And so, um, yeah, so I work with workaholics, but then there's also those people, yeah, that are just disengaged, that feel um, this like nagging sense of discontent or feeling frazzled or frustrated. Um, I hear a lot of people say, I'm stuck or I'm lost or I'm not sure where to start or like I can't talk to my boss. And so, um, yeah, just helping them remember to like, you know, giving them a little bit of tough love. I like to say that, you know, you're an adult and you have choices. Like you're not stuck and you're not a victim and you don't have to play a martyr. If you're not happy, 
really the only person that can change that is that person. And I think one of the most important aspects is uh, taking personal responsibility for our happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, at times it's hard. We don't want to take responsibility for that. We want to place blame and say, but this and but that. But taking that personal responsibility for our happiness is absolutely critical for our well-being. It's really an inside job. Yeah. Rebecca, some 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 jobs and some line of work, I do understand that after five o'clock when you clock out, it's that's the end of it. But then you do have um, certain duties and certain jobs where you take that job home as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not about the dissatisfaction with with the job that you have you love that job it's 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 you know it's paying the bills and it's wonderful and everything is great but when then when it comes home nowadays what we see parents especially and and even um husband and wife uh if 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 they don't have kids that communication or that relationship that suffers um yeah. how do you tell someone or how do you where do you draw the line if if you know what i mean sometimes the partner doesn't understand yeah. the importance of the job you love that job you understand the importance sure. of that job <laughs> um but, but at home there's this you know friction maybe sometimes that you know why you're always thinking about work yeah friction is a great word absolutely i think you nailed it um one of the biggest aspects one of the most important aspects i think about happiness at work or really in in any relationship is about boundaries. Hmm. Um boundaries with ourselves um and boundaries with others. And so, you know, what could that look like? And so I've I've got got just a handful of situations that that usually come up of like, hey, I'll just work like if I'm talking to my spouse of saying, "Hey, I'll just work an extra hour tonight to catch hmm. up." And 3 hours later, you're yeah. still at it. Or or during my work day, oh, my internal dialogue might say, I have to go to this meeting or that meeting or this other meeting today. But none of those are actually related to my current work priorities. Hmm. Or you might have a dialogue saying, my coworker like really needs my help on this particular project. I'll just work on my stuff like later this afternoon or yeah. tonight. It's fine. It's totally fine. And meanwhile, your time energy, mental and physical capacity depletes and you and your work suffer. And so I think of personal boundaries as a loving mentor to your inner teenager, there to share advice, encouragement and accountability. And so when we are lacking personal boundaries around how our time is used during the day at work, it tends to bleed over into our nights, into our weekends, mm. into our holidays. And so just a handful of examples of personal boundaries at work could include just being really honest with yourself and others about your current workload, about your time capacity, about maybe unresolved questions or challenges that you're having, mm-hmm. um prioritizing workflow, focused time blocks of when you can be most productive at work, asking for help when you need it or sharing candidly when you don't fully understand something hmm. but i think also that's really important is taking those frequent mental and physical breaks during the day and those are boundaries that we set with ourselves that when we're not taking those breaks our energy gets depleted and so just like standing up and walking around or taking a few deep breaths and drinking some water or goodness going outside for 5 minutes but 
when we when our day can run amok and we're not in control of how our time is used during the day that's when I see a lot of our work responsibilities bleed over into our evenings and we just think oh it's okay like I'll just be a few minutes and it's usually not the case it's usually not just a few minutes and that's just it that friction with our partners with our families with our other responsibilities like our life isn't always yeah. isn't all about being at work and even if we love it there needs to be some compartmentalization sure rebecca when you talk to uh, these people um your clients who are not happy disengaged at work what are what are you finding what do you what do you uh, what are the underlying causes of this dis- disengagement Yeah, I think really the the biggest key to happiness at work or if we want to call it work life balance or work life integration or just really being disengaged is reducing stress and overwhelm. Is what is going on in your life right now holistically of like what are your work responsibilities, what are your life responsibilities and how do we combine those together? in a manner that's doable and not overwhelming. I mean, I tend to see folks that and I myself have suffered from this too of just really um being a perfectionist and wanting to go above and beyond on responsibilities of taking on too much than I could, which means like I was over capacity, I was over committing myself. Mm. And that's just not being honest with myself or with my teammates or others. And that stress and that overwhelm is one of the leading causes of just disengagement. I I read a lot now and I talk to folks now about um you know folks are quitting their jobs and saying mm. the number one reason is because of mental health challenges. Yeah. And that is you know that can be a lot of things, but it's it's not being honest with yourself. It's not being able to ask for help. It's overpromising and underdelivering. It's stress. And when that chronically is happening, when that consistently is adding up when you have this sense of stress and overwhelm it's so depleting to our whole life force and so um that's really what i see the most of is just this chronic stress and chronic overwhelm that gets to a breakpoint and they sometimes will just say like i got to leave i got to do something different i got to get out of this relationship mm-hmm. or i got to quit or i got to change teams or um you know usually it's something drastic and so yeah. i like to just let's let's come let's talk you down off the ledge like let's process those feelings and maybe that might be the case however the the mistake that happens there is if we don't work through those habits if we don't work through those tendencies of how your time is used right now you're just going to take that into your next job you're just going to take that into your next gig if we don't really address it and work through that and so um the problem is not usually your job it's almost always um an inside job it's usually with what's going on with you and how you're us- utilizing your time wonderful and i think that that was you know the question that i had as well that if you are not happy what what do you do i mean and brother daniel quit and he just said i'm going to be my own boss 6 years ago and that worked out perfectly for him <laughs> if, 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 if i and if i heard uh, heard that correctly i think that's what rebecca did as well so. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, Daniel. It, Excellent. It is. Excellent. Thank you very much, yes. Rebecca. Thank you so very much for joining us. Really a pleasure to speak yeah, to you. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Oh, lovely to meet you both. Thank you. Enjoy Take your day. Yeah, and and you. And you. Peace upon you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. With that, we're going to go to our next guest right away. Paul Krismer is with us on the line. He's the founder of the Happiness Experts Company. Uh, workplace culture expert and best-selling author of Whole Person Happiness How to Be Well in Body, Mind and Spirit Wonderful to have him on Paul, good afternoon Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show Thank you so much It's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen I am just amazed at uh, the new things that I'm learning today Happiness Experts Company uh, you know, Tell us about that and, and that, that must have been some, some amazing work that you do it's really fun for me. I, I love what I do, and really all we're doing is teaching what science has kind of proven that intuitively we mostly know, you know, to, to be in good relationships, to, to be grateful, to be out in nature, things that we intuitively know. Science is proving that we can actually measure the degree of additional happiness we can get, and a whole bunch more in terms of techniques to just live a happier life. All right. You talk about uh, you're the founder of Happiness Experts Company and and the best-selling author of Whole Person Happiness, uh, how to be <laughs> how to be well in body, mind, and spirit. How do you make that connection to employ to uh, to the culture culture of the company? Well, you know, I I think sometimes businesses have a hard time acknowledging that there's a spiritual component to their work. And as long as there's humans doing the work, then people are coming in a spiritual way to the workplace. And spiritual doesn't necessarily mean anything that has religion, although religion may be a pathway to good spirituality. But it means that there's parts of us that are not material, that are about what's truest in our hearts, in our our most inner selves. And to that degree, um, businesses that are sincere about creating environments that are, are positive and bring the best out of their employees have to tend to some certain amount of spiritual needs. Does that depend on the on, on the work? I mean, if it's, let, let's say, I don't know, where you're helping people uh, compared to if you're just, I don't know, finance or business or something very, um, you know, focused, basically. I think it's universal. So long as we're working with humans, mm-hmm. humans have the same basic needs. And, and even some organizations that we would think are pretty far away from having a spiritual context. I'm mm-hmm. even doing some work right now with the U.S. military. And, you know, we wouldn't think of them as a very spiritual organization. But in order for people to serve proudly and feel like they're doing noble and important work, mm-hmm. it needs to tie into values that are meaningful to them. Okay. Right. So so essentially then, would would you agree that a toxic culture, uh, a toxic company culture, has a lot to do with uh, with employee disengagement. A hundred percent, and we see it over and over. And there's many formal, you know, academic studies that demonstrate this point too. That, um, and in any investment that a company makes in the mental well-being, the spiritual well-being of their workforce, um, has about a six-to-one rate of return. So it's a phenomenal. Um, uh, ability to move people forward. And and often the toxic uh, culture is very much determined by what leadership is doing and failing to do. And so it's um, strategic for organizations to weed those toxic personalities out and toxic work practices out as quickly as they possibly can because the returns on investment are just huge. 
Paul, why why is it important for people to be happy and satisfied in the workplace? I know for the employee, yes, uh, you know all the factors that you mentioned uh, and we spoke about before as well, mental health and you know taking that load or that work um, pressure and stress to to your private life. But for the employer, what what do they get out of it? I mean, are there any wider effects uh, of an employee's sense of of fulfillment? Absolutely. So there's a excellent research that's been done on the relationship between happiness and successful personal life outcomes. People are literally, believe it or not, they're smarter when they're happy. Their social skills are obviously better. Their health is better and the energy levels they bring to work are better. They even have greater um, peripheral vision. So they're like literally more aware mm-hmm. when they're at work in a positive mood. And so when you translate that to a corporate level, and again, there's been numerous studies done on this point, you can start saying if we do things with deliberate intention of improving the emotional tone of a workplace, well, what kinds of things do we see come out of that? Well, that includes less turnover, fewer sick days, um, uh, you get more creativity, higher customer service, something that academics called organizational citizenship, which is this brilliant idea that people no longer are just being paid to do what's in their job description, but they start volunteering their hearts to just solve the problems of the organization, mm-hmm. even if it's outside of their job description. And obviously, when you have those kinds of things going for you, um, you also get more productivity, higher profitability, and a stable, healthy, happy workforce. I read somewhere, Paul, that uh, an engaged employee is somebody who has an emotional connection with the company. Would you? W- does that sound right to you? I think it most definitely does. And we all come to our engagement with the workplace from different places. You know, we are, our values are different one person to another. But if I'll give you a weird example, I worked with a pulp mill for some years ago, and it's a pretty stinky, uh, difficult industrial place, and it didn't have great labor relations. But when we started talking about what the product is that the company actually builds, which was just a little white pellet of paper that got shipped all around the world, and we asked, well, what do your customers do with this? Well, it turns out that um, slow-release medications in a bandage form were made out of this paper pellet, and little babies' diapers were made out of this pellet. Hmm. And when the company could start connecting the very human basic benefits that their product was having, immediately people felt a little bit warmer about why they're there. Their purpose at work became something larger. And that's just one tiny example. There may be a million other ways that we would attach the, the, the outcomes or the processes of work to people's own personal values. And then you're appealing to their hearts and no longer just paying for their labor. Paul, I, uh, Imam Reza and I were talking about earlier that th- there is uh, a huge focus now in the corporate world uh, around employee engagement. Um, and that seems to be uh, a growing area. However, when you talk to um, your clients or, or company executives, do you find that there are any takers of the connection that of the, the spiritual connection that you're talking about? I think more and more companies are recognizing that the employment employee engagement programs of 20, 30 years ago just aren't cutting it. And, mm-hmm. and I think most of your listeners will identify with this with where 25 years ago we said, oh, we need to pat people on the back more and appreciate them. Yeah. And so somewhat insincere events get done where you, you know, you get a, a employee appreciation lunch and, you know, we all like a free lunch, but <laughs> that isn't the stuff that actually speaks to mm. who I am as a person. And, and when companies invest to deeply witness 
and appreciate and um, in a meaningful way develop their employees, there, there's this beginning of this two-way street where loyalty is just given back to people who, in fact, have been good to individuals. And so I think a lot of people are turning on to it. There, there has historically been an easy-to-understand management style that we all know is kind of wrong. I, I call it command and control. It's that terse, directorial, I always know best, um, kind of giving people the clear direction. And if things don't go well, I get angry right away. And we, we kind of know that image. But what's the alternative? What's the better way to be a leader? We don't have as clear-cut descriptions and understandings of what that is. But science has caught up to the point where we know what works, where we get more productivity, where we get more creativity, and where we get loyalty so people are happy to stay and, and give their best hours of their lives day after day to an employer. Um, I, I think um, I read uh, probably it was Stephen Covey who said that uh, one answer to command and control is uh, trust and inspire. Would you agree? Yes, I love that. And of course, yeah. the process to get to trust is not straightforward. It becomes a very human, personable relationship that has to be built. And, and so, so long as businesses are run by humans, we have to have a humanity in the way we do the work. Paul, um, on on a personal level, I, I'm, maybe I should have started off with that. What what got you into this? I, as a very young man, <laughs> uh, was very happy to be given senior leadership jobs that I probably wasn't super well qualified to do. I just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time. And <laughs> I, this is the honest truth. I was so intimidated by it. I was reading all these business gurus, Stephen Covey included, that I loved and I learned a lot from. But around the time, late 1990s, where positive psychology started becoming its own subspecialty within the broader field of psychology, I simply couldn't read enough. I loved it because it was no longer somebody's opinion or narrow experience they had as the head of some big company. We were now looking at scientific principles to have people live their best lives. Hmm. And so I used it on myself. I taught it to the teams that I was working with. And I have just found it to be so... Um, fundamentally life improving that even if it didn't improve the bottom line for the business, I would still be 100% bought into this work that I do. But the fact that it helps all elements of mm. people's lives, their families, their communities and their workplaces, it's just, it's the thrill. Wonderful. So, uh, Paul, then, uh, which one is it? Uh, is it? Is it the toxic company culture that we holistically need to fix? Or is it the individual um, level of happiness uh, in their line of work? Or is it both? Well, <laughs> it's both. Every individual ideally would be introduced to ideas to, to live a happier, more fulfilling life. And, and by happier, I don't always mean a big grin from ear to ear and skipping them through the woods. You know, happiness is all kinds of positive emotions like curiosity and inspiration and hope and amusement. There's a bunch of things that make up happiness. And we all want to pursue that. Um, but employers, they are never responsible to, quote-unquote, make an employee happy. Hmm. But they have all kinds of responsibility to create conditions where happiness is more likely to occur. And there's a ton of techniques and ways that people can learn that. In fact, I've got a second book coming out very shortly that's just exclusively on that topic of applying the principles of positive psychology in a workplace. How big a role in your opinion do company values play 
in creating the that emotional connection that we were talking about earlier? Well, the, it, it's an, that's a great question, and it's got a slightly complex answer. Is that very often companies at their most senior levels come up with a, a vision statement, a mm-hmm. mission, and, and a set of corporate values, and they have absolutely no um, connection from the written paper and their no annual meaning report. meaning to them, yeah. Yeah, to, to the experience of the frontline worker. And the culture of an organization, of course, is owned by the frontline people. It's their attitudes, feelings, sh- shared beliefs, and their own shared sense of history that creates the culture. And quite frequently, the senior executives are very removed from that real culture, the thing that's actually living and breathing in the organization. And so the tact I usually take when working with an organization is to, of course, have senior leadership buy-in and endorsement, but the the practice of improving the culture happens as close to the front line as you can get. So for me, that's mostly supervisory and management training, teaching them the techniques of making a workplace more humane. But the company values are always driven by the boards, aren't they? Well, but the way we relate to one another happens at the front line. And so hmm. it, you would want, for example, the values to be meaningful at the front line, hmm. Hmm. but the values that people choose for themselves as to whether or not they're going to stay working in an organization will be a reflection in their day-to-day activity that they have with their the people closest to them and the, and the processes and the, the tasks that they do that are closest to them. So the, the beliefs of the most senior leaders are important, but the most important thing is to teach the skills and values that are necessary for happy workers at the front line. Excellent. Paul Chrisma. Yeah, uh, sorry. From 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 my side, the last question that I have, if you allow, um what's the one thing that you can tell our listeners if they are unhappy in their line of work? That's as an employee, but also as an employer, you know, small, medium sized business. Um and, and I mean sometimes you sense it but there's a lot of things happening at the moment here as well in the UK, cost of living crisis and whatnot. The bills are just skyrocketing. How much or what is it that an employer can do? Anything that they can take away? One, one, one key piece of advice that you, you could give. I would say perhaps the one critical aspect that every employer should be able to do is to invest genuinely in the physical plant of their organization and start making it as pleasing and comforting for humans to be in as possible. Hmm. And I give that example because it's easy to explain and it's easily done. Hmm. Um, for, for your listeners who individually may be unhappy at work, um, we are, might be headed into tougher economic times, with, as you mentioned, the high inflation and what will likely occur is a, a slowdown in the economy. But if you're in an organization that's got an unhappy, difficult workplace culture, we have rarely been in as good a times as we are right now for people to be able to pick up and move to someplace else mm. that, that concretely might have better conditions to create happiness. And so for your listeners who are really frustrated and in a difficult culture, especially in a big organization where culture doesn't change easily, I would encourage them to, in a kind of reasoned way, but make a plan, go find someplace that suits your own values better. Paul Christmas, thank you very much for your time, sir. Great to have you on the show, and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much once again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. On this note, there's a, uh, just, you know, yesterday I was watching uh, 
an interview with someone from the NHS. There's 130,000 places in the NHS that need to be filled. Oh 130,000 places. Wow. I'm sure you'll find something if you're unhappy. <laughs> I'm not looking for one. <laughs> <laughs> not you, of course not. <laughs> All right. Um, 0208-687-7878. Don't forget, we're asking you a question in our opinion poll on Instagram. Where do you work and how happy are you? There is a good voice for some UK and cast your vote. Our next guest for today Today is Vanessa King. Vanessa is a board member and workplace lead at Action for Happiness. Vanessa, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hi, thank you. Great to be here on a Friday evening talking about work. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about the good good sides of work, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Vanessa, um, if I can uh, ask you to kindly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Action for Happiness. Uh, yeah, so, well, firstly, Action for Happiness is a social movement and charity, and it's really about taking the science of happiness, and uh, um, I don't know whether your listeners will be aware, but in the last 20 year, years or so, there's been a massive explosion on of research, both in psychology and other areas, in terms of how does life go right? What is it? How do we cultivate um, practices and skills within ourselves that can increase not just how happy we feel, but also our resilience. And by happiness, we mean not just that kind of fleeting pleasure, but that kind of sense of kind of kind of fulfilment, if you like, contentment. Mm. Um, um, you know, which you know, in, of course, incorporates. You know, how do we deal with challenges? How do we overcome challenges? And all of that. And just about me. I mean, my background. You'll be. I mean, I studied psychology, but I trained as an. I qualified as an accountant, and. Um, was one of the big firms and then worked for many years in business and moved into HR and a lot of work advising organizations in ways to bring out the best in people before getting into the sort of science of happiness, which I've been sort of um, studying and deeply immersed in for the last 12 years. I've written wow. about four books on the topic <laughs> and including one, well, a whole chapter on happiness at work in a, in a book called Creating the World We Want to Live In, um, um, which is a of course, work is a big part of the world for many yeah, of us. Wonderful. Vanessa, why is it important to have discussions about happiness and mental health? Well, I think I think um, there's been a lot. It's really important because um, human beings are emotional creatures, but a lot of the practices historically that, you know, up until very recently um, that uh, have been applied to managing people have almost treated people like cogs in the machine Hmm. um, as opposed to human beings and human beings are emotional beings so if we're not talking about you know how we're feeling what's working for us what's not um, um, then you know we're missing that big part of us and actually sometimes it gets suppressed and under the carpet and then you know people um, you know we're not tapping into things um, dealing with issues early but also we're not cultivating the environments and cultures and practices and habits in ourselves that can actually help us feel happier and when we're it's in when we when we feel happier not only is it does it feel good but we actually function better so in the workplace for example there's been recent studies looking at that people who were happier were 13 percent more productive with no loss in quality doctors who are happier make faster more accurate diagnoses organizations that pay attention to creating happier workplaces 
financially outperform organisations that um, don't. So, and that was work by uh, a London, studies by a London business professor called Alex Edmonds, who found that there was a a, a year-on-year um, um, sort of happiness and sort of uplift, if you like, um, financial uplift for those organisations that were in the sort of top hundred places to work um, in the, in the, that was in the US. But yeah, but so this stuff, happiness is not just a nice to have; it actually yeah. has uh, benefits. I think it's also good to note that. I mean, sickness absence is often one of the things that plagues organisations or presenteers and people being at work and mm. not not being their best. And we know, for example, that when people are happier, they tend to be physically healthier. You know, they tend to be more motivated, more engaged, more likely to help others. So there are lots and lots of benefits to um, paying attention to sort of people's psychological well-being and happiness. Do you find, Vanessa, that they're... L- there are now um, more and more takers of uh, uh, of this belief that uh, that that companies have to fix their culture and fix the um, and make people happy. Well, I think you. I mean, I think uh, I think it's a shared responsibility. We can't, you know, and and I think it's really important for both employees and employers to kind of realise that that they're. You know, you can create you can create the environment you like. You know, put all the emphasis on the culture, but people also need to have the skills and practices to enable them to to you know to feel happier and to make the most of that. I mean, which doesn't mean to say they'll always be you know they'll be happy all the time because you know you come you come across a challenge at work or a difficulty or whatever stuff going on at home Mm. that you know of course undermines how happy you feel in the moment but have the tools and strategies to deal with that but i think it is um as your previous speaker was saying we're in a in an environment now where we know that their you know mental ill health is rising we there's a whole body of science now emerging that we can use to that uh, it's a win-win situation for organizations so it's good for employees, um, and it doesn't just mean um, we shouldn't just be paying attention to employees. We should also look at the whole ecosystem. You know, the, the, our suppliers, our um, freelancers, and contractors. You know, if we can create situation, you know, and enable um, them to kind of feel good and function well, it's a win-win. You know, mm. and then if I'm happier at work, that affects my family, mm. affects my community. I'm more likely to contribute to my community if I'm happier. Do you think? HR as a function also needs to evolve over the years. We've seen, you know, HR traditionally used to be, you know, the paper pusher HR, and then <laughs> HR evolved into a very business supportive HR. You know, only looking at the business side of things and only looking at people as a number, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, people with uh, 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 with blood and tears. Uh, do you think HR needs to evolve? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it is evolving. I think from the from the time when I was in HR, I think it is evolving. I think um, it's actually a strategic, you know, as, as your previous speaker said, you know, if you're not paying attention to this stuff right now, your employee, your talent, you know, as organizations call it, can get up and walk. Um, so it's a strategic priority for organizations and therefore the people side of the business needs to be, you know, um, up there as a you know alongside finance or sales or whatever um but i think we need to you know there are different components to human resources there's the the compliance and the you know the kind of look you say the kind of 
I, I wouldn't necessarily say paper pushing anymore, but you know that mm. um, that side, that compliance um, uh, side of it, the you know making sure people are paid on time and all that stuff is important. And then I think there's also then the kind of um, the leadership development, the management development, the employee development, the kind of creating opportunities and building the culture. And I, I, for me personally, those have all almost felt like two different functions and maybe needed. I think the cultural piece really needs to sit alongside the strategic piece because what culture do you need to deliver the strategy, the business strategy that you're talking about in, in the market context um, that you're in? Wonderful. Um, one one last question, Vanessa, if you don't mind. Um, does it depend on 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 the different age groups? I mean, this definition of happiness and how we perceive it, does that change over the years? Because the reason why I'm asking this is nowadays, if you, we had this discussion, me and Daniel, just before we spoke to you as well, um, about social media, the perception that people have about how life should be, what our job should entail, when should we achieve certain goals in our lives. Social media is changing all of that, according to mm. what I have seen. How how do we, is that something that is considered, is that something that is cha- that changes as we go through life? Well, I mean, I think inevitably what we want from work um, and um, changes as, you know, um, as we, you know, go through life. And I think there are pressures now on young, a lot of the young young people in terms of their, I mean, so it's a, it's a mixture of things. One is, you know, social media perhaps presents, um, you know, kind of the people in perfect jobs. Yeah. If you're not feeling very happy at work. No, we're talking about the, the million with 21. So you got to have six figures by the time you're 21. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've seen that in my kind of nephews and things like that, <laughs> with those sorts of expectations, yeah. you know. And it's, and then, of course, that sets people up to feel really unhappy with their work. But, of course, social media can, can be great at helping people connect in, you know, um, and find, you know, things like LinkedIn and stuff really help people find careers and navigate things and find people to learn from. Um, so it can be a, a sort of help and a hindrance. Um, but it, yeah, I think it's, being realistic. I mean, I think there's also with younger people that have looked at how perhaps their parents worked and how, you know, the always on culture and things like that. And I'm saying, well, actually, I don't want to do that. I want mm. to have a life that's got more in it than just work. Of course, work is a really important part of yeah, life, yeah. but I also want some other things. Or I want to do something that I, w- I want to make sure that whoever I'm working for is you know has a purpose beyond profit hmm. is you making a difference in some way to the world around us be that environmentally Absolutely. or the communities yes. we're in so i think there's so i think that's really positive that we're seeing from from you know from the perhaps the young younger generation of the workforce wonderful wonderful board member and workplace lead at action for happiness vanessa king with us on the line vanessa thank you so much for your time it was an absolute You're pleasure welcome. to have you on thank you so much once again Pleasure. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the last point that Vanessa mentioned. I want to take up from there because that's uh, what some you know bringing to the end of today's program. Something beyond work. Something that a purpose in life. It's not. I'm sure it's not the nine to fives or whatever self-employed people have as working hours. Mm-hmm. It's beyond that, and I think that's something that if I if I look at <laughs> my 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 life. 
and I've been very fortunate to to go into this. When I've spoken to other imams around the world, some of, some of whom I know, they described it. And everybody has a personal story to it. Everybody mm. has a personal way to to how they ended up in in this job. One of my good friends from Canada, he 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 said it in a way that God picked me up. Basically, he he he. How do you? He wiggled me a little bit, got all all that dirt off, and then he pushed me and or he just just let Placed me go me into yeah. and drop me into into that missionary school or missionary college, and that's how I ended up in here. That's that's the only way I can explain it. And and I think that that purpose that you have, not just to earn money, but apart from that, His Holiness mentioned this when he speaks to students. And 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 people who are still deciding what line of work they want to go into. Mm. It's a service to humanity as well. Mm. It's it's beyond just the nine to five. It's beyond just a paycheck. Are yeah. am I giving something? Am I getting anything other than monetary value yeah. out of that line of work or life in general? Absolutely. And I think you've summed it up so well. I think that's exactly what uh, Paul Grisma and our, our other guests were actually mm. talking about as well. That it is. Uh, even for organizations, I think there is now, uh, uh, there has been over the past few decades this this realization, and more and more now that even for SMEs, that the organization has even the organization has to have purpose, mm. and uh, the people who will um, uh, who will relate to that purpose will will then uh, become part of that company, and then you know the whole workforce will be engaged. So it's it's absolutely all about purposeful living. Verily, it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts find peace. That's a verse from chapter 13, verse 29 from the Holy Quran, in which God Almighty talks about the actual purpose of life and how we can achieve that peace um, that we are all after. Yes, it doesn't mean, and again, something that we've mentioned here on the Drive Time Show and on Voice of Islam many, many times, it does not only refer to worship and you know sitting in the mosque or sitting at home and just praying, praying, praying. Worship entails so many things. It entails charity. It entails helping each other. It entails... Uh, smiling to your brother, uh, which is also a form of charity mentioned by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And all of these things, that's something that has an impact on and something that we've been talking about on our inner feelings. So happiness is a construct that stems from how we feel about ourselves and our surroundings and ensuring happiness in the workplace is imperative as this is where we spend a huge amount of our daily lives. Religion also plays an important part, not only because people working in the field of religion have the highest happiness ratings, but importantly, because religion guides us on ways to find happiness within ourselves and spread this to everyone around us. We want to thank here uh, everyone listening in today. Thank you very much for your time. We want to thank Nuru Sabah, Gafi Zafar, and Fahana Khan for researching and producing today's show and uh, thank you very much again once again to you out there tomorrow morning sml and on sunday morning weekend world we're going to be back on monday assalamu alaikum